Heavenly Father, Lord, we come before your throne again. Lord, to honor your name, to honor your Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Lord, we know that we are treading on holy ground every time that we attempt to speak the things of Christ. Lord, I pray that you give us understanding that is in accordance with truth, that is in accordance to the glory of Christ. Lord, may you cause your people this morning and those that shall hear this message to see Christ as your son, to see him as God the Son, to see him being revealed that he may give us salvation, his people, and that he may reveal the Father to us. Lord, we thank you for the book of John. We seek your blessing in understanding in what is written. And Lord, we know that we could never go all the way to the depths of the things of Christ. But according to the measure of faith and understanding that you have given us, Lord, we pray that you give us understanding. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The book of John. John chapter 1. I'm going to begin by reading the whole chapter. And then we'll go right into it. So if you will with me, let's go to the book of John chapter 1. And I'll read the verses, all the verses from verse 1 to 23. But of course, we are not going to preach through all those verses today. That's going to be a number of sermons before we get out of chapter 1. Verse 1 reads, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him, and apart from him, nothing came into being that is come into being. In him was life, and the life was the light of man. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. There came a man sent from God, whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify about the light, so that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to testify about the light. There was the true light which coming into the world enlightens every man. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He came to his own, and those who were his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and God among us, and we saw his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. John testified about him and cried out, saying, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me has a higher rank than I, for he existed before me. For of his fullness we have all received 
and grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father. He has explained him. This is the testimony of John when the Jews sent to him priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? And he confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. They asked him, What then? Are you Elijah? And he said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, No. Then they said to him, Who are you so that we may give an answer to those who sent us? What do you say about yourself? He said, I am a voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as Isaiah the prophet said. There are four Gospels in the New Testament. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. The first three, that is Matthew, Mark, and Luke, are called the Synoptic Gospels. They are called the Synoptic Gospels. And what does that mean? What does it mean to say those three are Synoptic Gospels? Syn, S-Y-N, not S-I-N, means same. As in synchronized swimming, as in synchronizing your watches so that they tell the same time, and optic refers to sight, so we know that the nerve that's responsible for vision is called the optic nerve. So synoptic, because they see things from the same angle. They see things alike. These gospels tell the same stories. They tell the same stories, and they cover the same events. Most of them do cover the same events. John, on the other hand, focuses on a lot of different material that you don't find in the Synoptic Gospels. And he has a very high percentage of material. Uh, some say close to even 90% of John's theology is not, not the theology, but the events that he covers. You can still find the theology written, in, but not in the explicit way in which John has developed the theology for us. The book of Matthew intends to prove to the Jews then that Jesus Christ is the promised Messiah. So you see, the book of Matthew has a lot of Old Testament references. In my reading, they say, it has about 60 Old Testament references. So Matthew is out to show the Jews that this Christ is the Messiah. He is the Messiah. And as you are reading the book of Matthew, you hear Matthew say, as was spoken through the prophets. And then you go and quote the scripture. Matthew describes in detail the lineage of Jesus from David and uses many forms of speech which the Jews would have been familiar with. Mark, on the other hand, appears to be targeted to Roman believers, that is Gentiles, 
This is what I've read from others. This gospel is unique in that it emphasizes Jesus' actions more than his teaching. And it's a gospel that moves from one sin to another sin very, very quickly. And unlike Matthew, it does not begin with a genealogy. Because probably if you're thinking of the Gentiles, they would not be very much interested in genealogies. They just want to know who this Jesus is. So in the book of Mark, after the introduction of Jesus, it is baptism. He begins his public ministry in Galilee and called the first four of his 12 disciples. And then immediately what follows after that is the record of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. Luke, on the other hand, reveals the purpose of Christ this way. In Acts 1, verses 1 and 2, this is what Luke says. Um, he, that is Jesus, began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up to heaven. So this book is to reveal what the Lord Jesus Christ began to do and to teach. So you see there's a lot of teaching there. Until the day he was taken up to heaven. And also this is what Luke would say in Luke 1 verse 3. He says, It seemed good to me also, having had perfect understanding of all things from the very first, to write to you an orderly account, most excellent Theophilus, that you may know the certainty of those things in which you were instructed. So Luke is writing to this guy called Theophilus. I'm thinking he had to be some high-ranking guy wherever he existed, and I'm thinking he probably was a Gentile. So he is curious about the things of Christ, and the Holy Spirit moves Luke to write an account of the things that Jesus Christ did and taught. And Luke, as we all know, or probably have had, was a medical doctor. And we see in his gospel the compassion that someone of his kind of background would have, compassion for the people. And he draws out that theology from Jesus. And you see more in Luke, the ministry of Christ towards the Gentiles, towards the Samaritans, women, children, tax collectors, and sinners. And a lot of the people who would naturally would have been considered as social outcasts. So that's what Luke draws out for us. And now to the book of John. We know that the author of the book of John is John. Even though there is a lot of speculation about who it may have been. Some people don't believe that it's John who wrote the book. In my reading, some suggest that it may have been Lazarus, the brother of Mary and Martha. It's just amazing some of the things that you hear from people who are supposed to be well-studied <laughs> and the kinds of speculations that they have. I'm like, did you even need to put this on paper? <laughs> but what we know is this is the book of John that most likely was written by John himself because we see and find the same theology in the epistles. We find the same theology in the epistles. We know from John 21 verses 20 to 24 
we have a description there. We have a description of a person or a disciple who is called the disciple whom Jesus loved. And it is this disciple who is a witness to all these things that Jesus Christ did. So now to the kind of stories that John writes. He brings a lot of stories and theology that you don't find in the synoptic gospels, as I said. It's John who brings new material, like the wedding at Cana. He gives the encounter of Jesus with Nicodemus. You don't find that anywhere else. He brings the story of the Samaritan woman at the well. He brings the story of the man born blind. He brings the story of the death and resurrection of Lazarus. Now, there's something that is peculiar, though, about the book of John, in that he does not bring the transfiguration of Christ. You would have thought that that would be something that would include, but John goes beyond the transfiguration. He brings the theology of the person of Christ. So, what is lacking in him not recording the transfiguration is made up in the theology about Christ that the Holy Spirit gives John to teach. John spends about 40% of his gospel describing just one week, the Passion Week, the the week of the Lord moving towards the cross. He is preoccupied with the death and resurrection of Christ. And as you read the book of John, you see that as you draw close to John chapter 12, the hostility is just starting to rise. The, the Jews start to hate Jesus more and more and more. Everything is climaxing towards the cross. The hour is coming. The hour, because if you hear the Lord Jesus Christ talk, he was always talking about the hour is not come. The hour is not yet. And he was meaning the hour of his crucifixion. The purpose of writing, there's a lot of theology here, but we're just going to be touching on a lot of themes that are in the book of John, and definitely we won't be able to exhaust them. These are themes that we are going to be seeing as we progress with the teaching. And I won't have all the things that are important to the theology of John, but these are some of the fundamental things that we have to lay our hands on if we have to move anywhere. And as I said, the fourth gospel does not provide a synopsis of the life of Christ. John does not talk about the birth of Christ unlike Matthew and Luke do. And he does not talk about Christ. No, he does talk about the baptism of Christ. He does, right? Yes. John 20, verse 30, 31. We are told the reason why John wrote the gospel. In John 20, verse 30 and 31, we are told the reason, the purpose, why John wrote the gospel. And it reads, And truly, Jesus did many other things in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And that believing you may have life in his name. And we have a similar statement about Christ from John in his epistle, 1 John verse 1 to 4. And it reads, 
that which was from the beginning, which we have had, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, and our hands have handled, concerning the word of life, the life was manifested, and we have seen and bear witness, and declare to you that eternal life which was with the Father, and was manifested to us, that which we have seen and heard we declare to you, that you also may have fellowship with us, and truly our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And these things we write to you that your joy may be full. So you notice that the purpose of this gospel is Christocentric. And what we mean by Christocentric is saying that the gospel is Christ-centered. The gospel is Christ-centered. He says that you may believe Jesus Christ, that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. We are accustomed to say Jesus Christ. His name is Jesus the Christ. Christ is not Jesus' last name. Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, according to his work as our Savior. He's the Messiah. The anointed one. But I want you to see the twofold description of Jesus in the theology of John. He does not say Jesus is just the Christ. And neither does he say Jesus is just the Son of God. He says he is the Christ, the Son of God. And we see the same twofold confession of Christ with Martha in John 11 when she says, Yes, Lord, I believe you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is to come into the world. So that confession is very, very important for our theology to confess also as those who believe in Christ. We have to make a twofold confession of Christ. He is just not the Messiah, but there's more to his Messiahship than just him being the descendant of Abraham or the son of David. He is the Son of God. You also notice that the purpose of this gospel is eschatological. I'll explain what that means shortly. In John 11, verses 23 and 24, we hear of this conversation between Jesus and Lazarus' brother, sorry, Lazarus' sister, Martha. Uh, she says, Jesus said to her, Martha, your brother will rise again. And Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. And Jesus said to Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. And Jesus asked the question, do you believe this? Here Jesus was answering and helping Martha with her eschatology. And those who thought that resurrection and judgment came only at the end of the ages. That was the theology of the Jews. That the Jews, the Pharisees, you remember, they believed in the resurrection. So they were thinking, they were understanding that resurrection and judgment was an end of the ages. You had to wait to the end of things for God to come and judge. But Jesus Christ comes and corrects that theology and says, no, 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 no. I am the resurrection. What was supposed to happen at the end of ages is happening right now. If there's judgment, it's happening right now. 
if there's life to be given, it is happening right now. I am the resurrection and the life. So what is eschatology and what does that mean? Eschatology is from the Greek word eschaton. Eschaton. You, you see this when you read the Bible where it says Jesus Christ is the last Adam. Last there is L-A-S-T. That's eschatos. The last, last one. So when you're talking about eschatology, you're dealing with the theology concerned with the last things. The theology dealing with the last things of death and judgment and the final destiny of human souls. Okay? The final destiny of humankind and whatever becomes of them. So Jesus says, if you want to pass from death and judgment and into life, you have to believe on me. You have to believe on me. So you see, as you read in the book of John, that there's a lot of believing on Jesus or not believing in Jesus. So the eschatological life is not life which we already possess like the biological life. Rather, it is a heavenly life. There's a different quality to this life that we have to be given it by God himself. It is life that has to come from above. You must be born again to attain to this life. It is eternal life that, as I said, has to be given by God himself. The life that we possess from our mother's womb is darkness, blindness, and it is death. And this is what you are going to find in the book of John. You are going to see a lot of darkness and blindness teaching. The Jesus of John brings the life of heaven, the eschaton. So there is more to eschatology than just the millennial positions. The gospel itself ultimately is an eschatological gospel. It has, with all intents and purposes, things relating to future things. What is going to happen to you? So the gospel in its essence is eschatological because it's trying, it's not trying, it's taking you to heaven. And heaven is already existing in a very perfect state. Heaven is already Perfected because that's the abode of God Himself. Heaven is already perfect. So, what Christ is doing is He is coming as the Savior of the world and bringing that life that is in heaven and joining us to Himself that we may possess that life. All who are in Christ in the second creation are being conformed to the heavenly life. Those who are in Christ in the second creation are being conformed to the heavenly life. And the heavenly life is a life of righteousness and holiness. Righteousness and holiness is not a matter of do's and don'ts. It's not a matter of instructions. Rather, it's a state of being where everything about you is righteous. Your mind only processes righteous things. So you only do righteous things. You don't need any rules or anybody to remind you to do good. That's what you just do by nature. Because that's what you've been conformed to 
to the image of Christ. So you observe that the purpose of this gospel is soteriological. There are a lot of big terms there. But we have to grow and understand these terms because if we don't, it gets difficult to explain what it is that the Lord is teaching us from his word. So we'll introduce the terms and then we'll continue teaching them and explaining what they mean. So the Greek soteriological actually comes from the Greek soteria, S-O-T-E-R-I-A, which just means salvation. Okay? It just means salvation. And sota, which is S-O-T-E-R, just means savior. Okay? So if Jesus has to bring us to heaven, he has to save us from our sins and make us fit for heaven. If Jesus has to bring us to heaven, he has to save us from our sins. He is the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. That's what you start to hear from the witness of John the Baptist. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So the deity of Christ as God the Son is just not for the sake of him coming, but it's for the sake that he may become that final Lamb of God. The, not just Lamb of God. He is the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. And there's not any other lamb that is talked about in all the Bible that takes away the sin of anybody other than the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So Christ comes as the final and last lamb to be sacrificed once for all. And we even hear that theology from the book of Hebrews, right? Uh, We hear a lot about he was sacrificed once for all, once for all time. It's not once for all people, lest some people think that it's universalism. It's saying he was sacrificed once for all time as the final and last sacrifice of God. So Christ is not just the end of the law in the theology of John to those who believe, but the end of all sacrifice. Once you say the Lamb of God, you're saying he is the end of all sacrifice. So we can't even talk about eschatology that brings back the Mosaic and Levitical institutions even if the Lord comes back. I don't think there will be any sacrifice. But that will be undoing the work of the Lamb of God who finished the work. But to be the last sacrifice, he has to die more than the death of Lazarus and resurrect more than the resurrection of Lazarus. If he goes only as far as Lazarus, then we are still in trouble and we are still hopeless. But this one, when he dies and resurrects, he rises glorified. And he rises glorified as the first fruits of the resurrection. And he is God's promise to you and me And he is God's instrument for us that we also may be glorified in him. So the name of Jesus is Jehovah is our salvation. And his purpose was to save and saving us he did. And Jesus 
in the theology of John intertwines soteriology with eschatology. He says you are saved by him and by believing in him, faith in him and joined to him and you abide in him and you die and have died with him and you resurrect but have resurrected with him. And what was supposed to happen to you at the end of the ages is now happening to you now by faith. If you believe now, you have eternal life. Jesus does not say, if you believe, you shall have eternal life. He says, now present, you have, you possess it, eternal life. Christ brings the future to the present. Christ brings the future to the present. And he asks you and me the question, do you believe that? Now, we'll develop this shortly, but as to the outline of the gospel of John, the gospel according to John, because John does not have a gospel. God has a gospel. This is the gospel according to John. The simple outline is that the book is divided into four sections. It has the introduction, which is what we read, chapter 1. That's the first section. And it has the section number 2, which is the testimony of Jesus' signs from chapter 2 to chapter 11. These focuses on the signs or miracles that the Lord performed. And then we have the testimony of Jesus, our. This is from chapter 12 to 20. And this anticipates the exaltation of Christ subsequent to his crucifixion, burial, and resurrection. And lastly, we have the conclusion of the book. And this unfolds the ministries of Peter, which we had two weeks ago when I preached from John 21. Simon, son of John, do you love as thou me? That's the conclusion of the book of John. And, and you note also that one of the statements that's remarkable at the end of this chapter is the conversation that the Lord had with Peter and also John in the background. When there was discussion about whether John was not going to die. And the Lord says to, to Peter, if I, if I will that he remain till I come, what is that to you? You follow me. If I will that this guy would live forever, you follow me. That's a remarkable statement. Because he, he's saying that I am able to keep this guy from dying. If, if you question that statement... It reveals to you more than what a lot of people would say is true of Christ. Where on earth does Christ have the authority to say, Oh, Joe, if I want to keep you alive until I come, what is that to Guido? <laughs> How do you make such a statement? Where did he get that authority to make such a statement? So this tells you a whole lot more about the person of Christ. That he's claiming that I have the power of over death and life. 
So some of the themes that we find in the gospel that are in the introduction are basically the themes that will be drawn out and expanded upon throughout the whole book. So unlike the three synoptic gospels, John's purpose is not to present a chronological narrative of the life of Christ. There's no chronology to the life of Christ in the book of John, but to display his deity and its necessity for salvation. It's not just displaying that Christ is God and then that's end of story. It's there for the purpose of redemption. It's given for the purpose of redemption. So John's theology introduces Jesus as God the Son and his necessity as the mediator of all God's works of creation, whether of the old or the new. Whether of the old or the new. And you see that I I tend to want to talk about the sonship of Christ as God the Son so that people will not have any confusion about what I am saying about Christ. I like to call Jesus Christ God the Son. Because there are a lot of people, as you know, who say, oh, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, but they do not believe that His Sonship is the kind that we believe in, the kind that the Bible actually teaches, that is Sonship that's based on His deity. Okay. So Jesus Christ as God the Son has always stood as the mediator in all of God's works. This is just very important for us to understand. The sonship of Christ has always stood in all the works of God as mediating everything that God does. As the Logos, which is the word, right? Christ is the Logos. He is the one who speaks for God. Christ is the one who speaks for God. And as the Son, he reveals the Father. He says, no one has seen the Father except him who has explained him who is in the bosom of the Father. And now, God does not speak to us. God the Father does not speak to us directly. He speaks to us in the person of his Son. God speaks to us by his son, but even more, the son now speaks for us before God. So everything was created through him in the first creation. Everything that God created in the first creation. Because remember, in the Bible, we have two creation stories here. We have the creation of the physical the first creation as we find in the book of Genesis. And then we have the second creation, which is the recreation of the old. And we see Christ being the mediator of both works of creation. Creation and recreation, whether of physical or spiritual things, is only a work of God. And salvation is a work of recreation. And only God can recreate. Only God can recreate. Why? Because to create something or to recreate something 
requires omnipotent power. All creatures, I don't care what creature you think of, creatures can only transform what has already been created. They cannot bring something from nothing. Creatures can only transform what has already been created. So John comes and introduces us to the identity of this creator and mediator of God. That Jesus is one who possesses that which the first Adam did not possess. It's right there. We'll see that. We'll develop that teaching. Christ is also introduced as the one who comes and does that which the first Adam could not do. He brings that which he possesses, life. He brings light. And the light of Jesus is different from all the other kinds of lights. It's not the candle light. It's the force, the P-H-O-S, light. It's a light that cannot be extinguished. You can't put it in water. You can't put carbon dioxide on it. You can't, you can't put it in darkness. It can't be extinguished. It's the light that is intrinsic to the nature of the person. If you have seen National Geographic videos where they have these deep sea creatures, they are in water and yet they are always shining light. How do you shine light when you are in the dark, when you are in a wet environment? The light is supposed to be extinguished. But Jesus is way much more than that kind of light. His light is intrinsic to him by reason of him being God. And it cannot be extinguished by any created thing. So Christ comes as one who possesses life and light. And he comes as the second Adam. But having pre-existed the first Adam. He comes as the second Adam, but having pre-existed the first Adam. He comes to remove what was in the first Adam, which was darkness, death, and condemnation. He comes to remove what was in the first Adam, which was darkness, death, and condemnation, and replace it with what is in him, light, life, and justification. So John purposefully goes back to Genesis, the book of beginnings, that he may remind us and prepare us for the work of the new creation. Genesis 1, verses 1 to 5, give us God's work of the old creation. And this is why I said last week that go and read the book of Genesis chapter 1, Because we have a lot of things that are there that John carries into his teaching and introduction of the person and work of Christ. Genesis 1 verse 1 to 5 reads, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was formless and void, and darkness was over the surface of the deep. And the Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the waters. Then God said, Let there be light, and there was light. God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning, one day. So in the beginning, 
the first origin of all things, what does it say? God. There was no God particle. As the scientists would say, they're looking for a God particle, but they deny the God himself. Not angels. Not men. It's God who created from nothing the heavens and the earth and everything that is in them. Whether it's light, light has to be created. The light that we see is a work of God's creation. And what do we see then? We see that the spiritual is more real than the physical because the physical comes from the spiritual. Even as we look at the book of Job, we see that what is happening in the physical life of Job has its origin in the spiritual realm. So Christ is the logos of the new creation and of the old creation. But he comes to inaugurate a new order, a new creation, a second creation. I'm going to be using these words over and over. A new creation, a second creation. A birth from above, you must be born again. Second creation. It's not enough for you to be born one time. The first creation by your mother is not enough. You need a second creation. And Christ says, you must be born up again. And this is how you get born again. Not from your mother, from heaven. You have to get the birth from above. And he says, a new birth with a different kind of water and blood. The blood and water, not from the womb of Nicodemus' mother, but from the side of a godman, pierced and raised up on a cursed tree. Now, this second creation is going to involve the same elements of blood and water, but not from your mother, but blood and water from the one who is a godman, who, is, who has been pierced on the cursed tree, that he may give you a new birth. This is the prophet that Moses talked about when he said to Israel in Deuteronomy 18.15, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your midst, from, you, from your brethren. Him you shall hear. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. This is him. So the coming of the Logos is the arrival of a new beginning. Is the arrival of the new beginning. And as we read from Genesis 1, the state of the immediate old creation was formless and Void the first creation. That's who you are. You are formless and you are void and marked by darkness until God speaks life and light into you. Until God speaks to you, you shall remain formless and void and marked by darkness. So the state of things just before the beginning of the new creation, even as Christ comes to his own, what does he find? He finds the same state of the old creation. Darkness. Men love darkness rather than light. And Moses says in Genesis 1.1, 1, 1, 
In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And John says, John 1, 1, in the beginning was the word. In the beginning was the word. And what do you see? The old creation came by the spoken word. The old creation came by a spoken, by a spoken word, which we call the divine imperative. We call that the divine imperative. Because with God, words are things. Let there be light. God does not have to go get some firewood and some matchsticks to get some light. He speaks and they come to being. Because with him, words are things. And this is why Christ, when he's being led to the cross, Isaiah 53 tells us that he went like a sheep to the slaughter. Never said much. Because whatever he has to say will happen. So he holds his mouth. That the work of salvation may be completed. New creation by the incarnate word. Word made flesh. God says in Genesis 1.3, let there be light. And Christ says, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. And in John 9.5, Christ will say, as long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. And now, the work of Christ, there's just way much theology that is connected with the redemption of God's elect that we need to be unpacking. There's just a lot of theology that we need to be unpacking. So one of the things that you see in the Old Testament, in Genesis 1.26, is this. It says, let us make men in our image according to our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over the cattle, over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. But Christ comes in John chapter 1, and he talks about our sonship. He comes and talks about our sonship as the children of God. And he tells us that he has given us the right to become children of God. That is, sons of God to those who believe in him, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of men, but of God. So your new birth, your new creation is by the will of God. And this is what Christ came to do. I have come to do your will Oh God, for in the scroll of the book, it is written about me. So now this Logos, this Christ who is the word of God, is now joined to man and has become fully man and fully God. Fully man so much that he does not look to possess deity. And he is fully God that he does not look to possess any humanity. So he is fully man and fully God. Okay? That we may be joined to God. You see, your problem and mine is that we were separated from God. But God comes and he joins himself to us by incarnation. He tabernacles among us. 
And by tabernacling, he is saying, I am enjoining myself to you and identifying with humanity that I may lift humanity from its misery of sin and death and darkness. So Christ has joined us to God that we may be called the children of God and become heirs with Christ. You can't be an heir if you're not a son. And now, because of Christ, we have been made heirs with him. But listen to how you become an heir with Christ. You have to be given a new birth that changes your family identity to the children of God. There's a contrast of death and life in the first and last Adam. Of death and life in the first and last Adam. And these are themes that are carried in John's teaching. In Genesis 2.17 it says, But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. But Jesus Christ comes in John 6.51 and says, I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I shall give is my flesh, which I shall give for the life of the world. So Christ comes and says, When I am lifted up on the cursed tree, I shall draw all men to myself. In Genesis, as I read, you shall not eat from that tree. But Christ is raised on another tree. And he says, come and eat. On this tree, on this cursed tree, I am going to give you life, not death. So we have a lot of language of the new creation. We have the language of the water into wine. That's the language of the new creation. We have the language of, I come that you may have life. What does that mean? It means you didn't have life. Now that Christ has come, you possess life. He comes and says to Nicodemus, you must be born again to see the kingdom of God. That's the language of the new creation. He comes and he says to the Samaritan woman, you have had five husbands. And the one that you are living with, you live in, is not your husband. But I have come as the seventh husband. And you need me, I'll give you the living water. I give you the living water. And remember, seven is the number of perfection in the Bible. So Christ comes to the Samaritan woman and says, Here I am. I am the husband that you've been looking for. I am the seventh perfect husband. New creation. Why the new creation? The new creation is given by the things that John says, the things, the things that John is developing are giving us a background of why Christ is being revealed this way. You hear the language of John of blindness, the language of the devil. You are of your father, the devil. You hear the language of darkness. These are all things of the odd creation. And because of our union with the old creation, we are also marked by those things. We are marked by sin, by death, blindness. We are marked by 
controlled by the evil one. So blindness comes because of the darkness. And darkness because of spiritual death. And death comes because of sin. No light in darkness. No light in Lazarus' tomb. No life in your spiritual tomb. The coffin or casket doesn't make a difference. It still contains a dead body. Lifeless until the Lord resurrects you to the light and life that is in him. That's what we see with Lazarus. He is in the grave entombed. And unless Christ shows up, Lazarus remains dead. And Christ was teaching something. So the world and everything contained in it is marked and possessed by death and darkness. Men are not alive outside Christ. They are the walking dead. They are all the walking dead. These are walking corpses. The world is in serious trouble because it is fleshly and that which is born of the flesh is flesh and the flesh profits nothing, the Lord said. So the created order is under the curse of God from Genesis chapter 3. And all men born after the first Adam are born dead in trespasses and sins and are lovers of darkness rather than light and have become the children of the evil one doing his bidding, sons of disobedience. And that is you and me. That is you and me even though we felt that we had life, we did not understand what it is to possess life. So we see men, fallen men, still consider life and possessing life in physical terms. How much stuff do you have? How healthy are you? Physical health. That is life in the eyes of the world, but that's not life in the theology of John. But we have this Christ who is Emmanuel, God with us, man, who comes and overcomes the darkness. The darkness did not comprehend him. And the word comprehend used there is a military term which is used to when an enemy tries to overcome their adversary in war and they want to put them out. Permanently. So the scriptures are saying when Christ comes as the light, the darkness wanted to overtake him. And even as they are putting him on the cross, their intention is not for salvation. Their intention is we are putting him out. But they played in God's hands. So this Emmanuel who overcomes the darkness says, He who follows me shall not walk in the darkness but shall have the life, the light of life. He who follows Christ shall not walk in the darkness. He comes and says, I am the death killer. I am the death killer. For the first time since the fall, there is now found a man who is able to remove the curse of the fall. There is now found a man who is able to remove the curse of the fall, not the blood of bulls, and God, they could never take away sin. A man is required. And Christ comes and says, a body you have prepared for me. The Lamb of God. He is revealed 
that he may remove the curse that was on you and me. And he says, as I read earlier, I am the resurrection and the life. He that believes on me is passed out of death into life. He have passed out of death into life. So, when Christ comes, the theme of Christ's coming, the theology is very, very, very important. And this is why the Lord revealed what he taught us in the book of John. Men have a much deeper problem than I think we even imagine ourselves, even having the light of the scriptures. I don't think we still can imagine what it means to be separated from God. And if God has to come and do something himself, this is something that is way, way much bigger than you and I can conceive. The issue that we have here is the removal of the curse that was put on man because of Adam's sin. And to remove a curse requires someone who is alive. And if man has to remove anything, if anything has to be moved, and if you have to be moved from death and darkness and blindness into life and light, you need a mover. And you need a mover who is alive. It requires omnipotent power to move all the people that have been moved. Otherwise, you get tired. So many people to move. So it's important in the theology of salvation that we affirm that Christ is God. Christ is God. Why? Because he has to be free from the curse of sin. He has to be free from the curse of sin. And it requires more than sinlessness for us to be saved. If Christ is just a man who is sinless, at most he can redeem just one person. You require one who is God for the salvation of all. And if it requires one who is God, then this Christ has to pre-exist his appearance. He has to pre-exist his appearance. So the Jesus of John is not just pre-existing because pre-existence does not prove deity. Because the angels pre-existed John. The angels pre-existed John. But we are told at the opening of the book of John that this Christ was in the beginning with God. And he was God. Okay, So John the Baptist's witness of Christ is, this was he of whom I said, he who comes after me is preferred before me, for he was before me. He is of a higher rank than myself. Even though Jesus, according to his flesh, was younger than John the Baptist. John the Baptist was about six months older than Jesus. And yet John says, this one is preferred before me, for he was before me. The pre-existence of Christ is proven by his works. The pre-existence and deity of Christ is proven by his works. He has to be more than just pre-existing, as I said. He has to be God. And he proves that he is God by the work of creation and the work of forgiving sins 
and the raising of people from the dead and the giving of life. This is the work of God alone. Only God can do this. And he tells us that this Jesus is before all the prophets. He is before all the prophets. He is before the law and Moses and he is superior to all. He tells us that this Jesus has come to give life. He has come to give life. And Jesus says, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. And I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. Neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. So Christ can only give that which he has in himself. He cannot give you anything which is not already in him. So who is this Jesus and why this Jesus? John is writing a thesis. When you read the book of John, John is writing a thesis. He states his thesis at the beginning, at the introduction, and says, I seek to show you the person of Christ at the end. I'm going to prove to you that this Jesus is who I say he is, and then at the end of it, I'm going to make a conclusion of my thesis. And by this, John is wanting us and is answering for us questions like, who is this even the wind and the waves obey him? And Herod asked, I beheaded John. Who then is this I hear such things about? When Jesus forgave the sins of the paralytic, the scribes and Pharisees asked themselves, Who is this fellow who speaks blasphemy? Who can forgive sins but God alone? And Jesus says, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And who do you say that I am? These are important questions for anybody and everybody to answer now before they are launched into eternity. Jesus wants you to know that your destiny, your eternal destiny and salvation is bound in how you answer any of those questions. The way that you answer any question is what tells you whether you are born of God or not. It tells you whether you have eternal life. Salvation is not in attending church or participating in church activities. It is not in church ordinances, not in baptisms, not in communion. It is not in being a good person or a good parent or a faithful worker. Salvation is not in any of the good things that we think we do. It is nothing of anything that you do. Salvation wholly is in who you say Jesus Christ is. And we stop right there. Jesus is your who, as I taught some weeks ago. The Lord is my salvation. Now, if you can say you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, Jesus says, blessed are you, for flesh and blood did not reveal that to you, but my Father who is in heaven. So what do the scriptures say? They say, they shall all be taught by God. They shall all be taught by God, therefore, Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. John 6.45 Everyone who has heard and learned from God the Father will come to Christ. There's not one who is failing to come to Christ. It's not, listen to what Christ says. He doesn't say they are going to come to me by your teaching or by the things that you are doing. He says 
when they have heard from the Father, they are going to come to me. If they hear from the Father, they will come to Christ. There's not a single person that Christ died for who is not going to come or hear from the Father. So we do not come to Christ by our own free will. You have to be born again and you have to be taught by God. If God does not teach you, you shall forever remain in unbelief. You have to be taught of God. If God does not teach you, you shall forever remain in sin and as an unrepentant person. So according to Jesus, to be a Christian is about making the correct confession about him. Because only those that are taught of God can confess and believe in Christ. It is not enough to say, I believe in Jesus. We have to ask, which Jesus do you believe in? The Jesus of John or the Jesus of Jehovah's Witness? The Jesus of Joseph Smith? Or the Jesus of the prosperity preachers? John says, his Jesus, which is my Jesus, is going to prove to you that he is God by his words and his works. And then I'll conclude for you that he is God. And at the end of it, he is just not making a conclusion. He invites you to see this Christ and know that if you have to possess the life that is in Christ, you have to believe in him. So John comes with a very high Christology. John comes with a very high Christology that is a very high view of the person of Jesus Christ. He wants you to go beyond what is called the functional Christology. I'm not sure if you have ever heard of functional Christology. Functional Christology, part of it is held by Jehovah's Witnesses, Mormons. They have a low view of the person of Christ. He is just an exalted angel. But there's more to functional Christology than just that. They believe that Christ was only revealed just to show us the works of God. But he is not God himself. He is just revealed for us to learn some things as our role model that we may observe and imitate him. That's functional Christology. So the Christology of John is not important in their understanding. And yet John reveals Christ's Christology as important to salvation. Christ is not revealed as an example Christ is revealed as the redeemer of the elect. And the high Christology of Christ is required for that work to be done completely. So then, you see a lot of preachers, the consumption with application sermons, the seven steps, this is what you have to do to become a better wife. This is what you have to do to have a better marriage. All that is coming from a law Christology. They are saying the only problem that you have right now is that you have a bad attitude. And if you could just adjust your attitude, all the problems that you have will be gone away. So Joe Austin, our friend, would say, just become a better you. If you can just become a better you, then everything is all right. But the theology that we find in John is so high And it puts Christ way up there so much that the work of Christ is not a work that you and I can imitate. You can't imitate Christ. 
trying and try hard as you may, you cannot imitate Christ. Christ is just Christ, all by himself. So, in the theology of John, we see that the Christology of Christ is way important to the work of Christ. So that the only way that you can possess that which Christ has done, come to do for you, is through the medium of faith. So you see, faith is very central to the teaching of John. All the fighting that Christ has with the Jews is because of unbelief. It's all because of unbelief. And John says, with this Christ, you can pass from judgment to salvation through the medium of faith. Right away. When you believe in Christ right away, you pass from judgment to salvation. And that those who, are, who believe in Christ are already judged in him. Those who believe in Christ are already judged in him. This is new theology. This is high theology. This is beautiful theology. That right now, God has so ordered things that your judgment has already happened right now when you come to faith. But even more, that your judgment happened with your union with Christ when he was raised on the cross. So the sign that you have passed from life, from death to life, is not for you to wait at the end of the ages. You know that by faith. If you believe in Christ, Christ says you are already saved. God has already judged you. You have nothing else to answer. <laughs> it's beautiful. So Christ says, most assuredly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has, present tense, eternal life, and shall not come into judgment, but has passed from death into life. You see that many things that have been said there. The one who hears my word and believes in him has everlasting life. So you believe not to have everlasting life. You believe because you have everlasting life. A lot of people have that the opposite way. You have to believe to have eternal life. And Christ says, you have eternal life, that's why you believe. Okay. So most assuredly, I said to you, the hour is coming and now is when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. That's John 5. We're getting close. John 5, verse 24 and 25. And in John 5, 28 to 29, he would say again, Do not marvel at this, for the hour is coming in which all who are in the graves will hear his voice and come forth. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life, and those who have done evil to the resurrection of condemnation. Those who hear are those who believe. That's the theology of Jesus, right? To him who has ears to hear, let them hear. And these hear not just any other voice, but the voice of the shepherd, the son of God. My sheep hear my voice. So the theology of John is a now and not yet theology. It's a now and not yet theology. And it also carries a lot of double meaning. He says the hour is coming, but now is. 
So the hour is coming, but now is. The dead shall hear the voice. Who are the dead? You are the dead. Okay? The hour is coming, but now is the dead shall hear his voice and come forth. From where? From the graves, the spiritual graves in which they were entombed. So there is a future resurrection to be had. There's a future resurrection to be had. But for those who are in Christ, their resurrection happened 2,000 years ago on the cross. Very important for us to know that. The resurrection of those that are joined in Christ happened with Christ when he died 2,000 years ago. So when you get raised, when you get raised in the future, it is not for judgment. You're not being raised for judgment. Judgment for anyone who is in Christ was already completed in the person of Christ. And as I taught earlier, the resurrection of Christ was God's satisfaction and testimony that your own judgment was complete. And you don't have to go and try to remember all your sins because you do not know 99% of your sins. Christ is the one who knows all your sins. And he confessed all your sins. And God judged him for all your sins. So then, only those who are unbelievers are going to be raised to judgment. But even then, John says, the one who doesn't believe, the wrath of God abides on them. The judgment of God is already right there. And if the Lord will just open the ground and they die, they are done. They are already done. And if the Lord were to open the ground for you, you are in glory. So the Lord will say, truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. We are going to be hearing these statements over and over and over. So related to John's emphasis on eternal life as a present reality is the stress on judgment as realized in a person's response to Jesus. So the, your response to Jesus is the most critical thing ever in all of eternity that you have to do. And with respect to you and your relationship with Jesus, there's only one thing that Jesus is asking you. It's your response to him. Who do you say Jesus Christ is? What is your response? If you respond to Jesus the way that you are responding in faith, he says, it's only because you have always been mine. And you respond because the Father has taught you. He has taught you about me. And some will come and say, what shall we do to do the works of God? What shall we do to do the works of God? By that question, men are thinking and are saying, we have the ability to do the works of God. Just give, give us something to do. But Jesus says, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he sent. The work of God is to believe in him whom he sent. And this work is the most difficult work that you could ever do. I will tell you that Sister Celia can build a skyscraper if I give her enough time. 
if I give her enough time, she can build a 60-story, 100-story building. If I give her enough time, she'll do it. But she will never believe unless if God does it. This is the hardest work. It's not making bricks. It's not digging. It's not mining. The hardest work that men will ever do is to come and believe in Christ. And Jesus comes and says, this is the work of God, to believe in him whom he sent. And when you believe, it's him who has taught you. Okay? So, faith is the surest sign of having passed from death to life. It's very important in keeping with the theology that we teach, that we emphasize this. For the freedom of the believer, faith is the surest sign that you are saved. It's not in all the subjective things that you do because the subjective things are constantly changing. And as they change, even your assurance also changes. Faith in Christ is the only evidence that you need to know that you have passed from death to life. So the Jesus of John is the Christ and the Son of God. Who is God the Son? And because he is God the Son, he is the mediator of all the works of God. Whether works of the old creation or the works of the new creation, which is redemption. He is the Lamb of God, the life of God, and the light of God. And he is the Logos, the Word made flesh. And John, by the Holy Spirit, is saying to us as then, these things are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you again for your Son, Jesus Christ. The revelation of Christ and his work in the second creation, his condescension and humiliation to take up human flesh that he may identify with us, that we may be in union with him, that we may possess the life that is in him, that we may be born again, not of corruptible seed, that we may be born again by the blood and water that came from his side, that we may be born again by him being raised up on the cursed tree, that he may remove the curse that was on us. Lord, we thank you that you completed the work. We thank you that you gave us the faith to believe. For faith is that work that you require of all men. And yet, no man has faith unless it's been given them. So I pray for your people this morning that those who have not had may hear and those who have not been taught may be taught of God. And as the Lord said, those who have been taught of my Father will hear me. So Lord, may you cause us to hear the voice of the great shepherd. May we follow him. Lord, may you continue to be with your people this day and forever. May you be with us 
in the days to come. May you be without going in and out. May you strengthen the weak. May you feed the hungry, spiritually and physically. Whatever they need, Lord, for the sake of your name. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.